Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Heidi ho <laughs> They're coming to get you, Barbara. This is my boomstick! Hi, I'm Chucky, wanna play? Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Horror Crypt Podcast, episode number 52. Um, this movie today that I'm going to be reviewing, uh, it's I have always thought that this is this was a great sequel. Um, a lot of movies that come out, you sit there and go, oh my god, we've got a sequel. I hope this is going to be awesome. And it ends up to be completely and utterly like crap. Or sometimes, like, you know, Back to the Future Part 2, it was just amazing. But uh, this one, because we're a horror movie podcast, this is the 1988 horror film directed by Tony Randall, starring Claire Higgins, Ashley Lawrence, and Doug Bradley, the second installment in the Hellraiser franchise, Hellraiser 2, Hellbound. This is, by far, as far as I'm concerned, really good because it really builds on the original. It really develops, you know, what the original was set out to do, it was set out to be. And, uh, yeah, I've just really, really enjoyed this one. It uh, draws heavily upon its predecessor, Hellraiser, which was released a year prior. Lawrence reprises her role as Kirsty Cotton, who is admitted to a psychiatric hospital after the events of the first film. There, the head doctor, Dr. Chenard, unleashes the Cenobites, a group of sadomasochistic beings from another dimension. Clive Barker, who wrote and directed the first Hellraiser film, wrote the story of Hellraiser 2 and served as executive producer. An international co-producer of the United Kingdom and the United States, Hellraiser 2, screened at the Toronto Film Festivals on the September the 9th, 1988. It received mixed reviews upon release. It grossed uh, 12.1 million at the box office. It was followed by Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth in 1992. Hellraiser 3, I thought, was actually not too bad. It, once again, it builds a little bit more, and it actually does follow on. There's, there's parts of this movie that follow on very nicely into Hellraiser 3, but we're not doing 3 right now. We are reversing all the way back to Hellraiser Part 2. And as I said, this one really builds on, on the movie. You also get to see um, almost like a very in-depth sort of like look of where Pinhead is and where the Cenobites are. But we'll get to that one as we as we go along. But look, before we get started, remember all social platforms and I'm on Instagram and Facebook at HorrorCryptOz and you can send me a direct message. Now, I do have a brand new email address, so don't send the emails to the old address because you're not going to get a reply because I've got a brand new one. The new one that I've got is HorrorCrypt2022 at gmail.com. I thought it would probably be easier than the other one, HorrorCryptOz at gmail, because it was, you know, I don't know whether people were finding it hard to reach me, finding it hard to try and work out how to write it. But look, HorrorCrypt2022 um, at gmail.com. There you can reach out to me and request a movie for me to do. You can also reach out to me and just tell me where you are in the world. I know there are people all over the world that are listening. And, uh, you know, just get in contact with me. Just tell me how you're liking the podcast so far. We're up to episode 52 and we I'm getting some considerable downloads. So I'm guessing that you guys might be enjoying the the uh, podcast. Not 100% sure. I would love to hear anyone's, um, you know, take on this on this podcast. It'd be really great. Also, I am going to be getting in the next, uh, say, month or two, some t-shirts made up with the Horror Crypt logo on it. So if you're interested in something like that, please reach out to me and uh, I might be able to get something organized where I can just send you a t-shirt at no cost to you. Um, just to say thank you for listening to the podcast. 
But look, before I get started, I love to play the trailer, and of course we all love listening to it. So sit back and relax, because here it comes. The vision is renewed. The power is reawakened. Fear is reborn because they have returned. Time to play. Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. Brace yourself for terror you have never imagined. Your suffering will be legendary, even in hell. And horrors you can never escape. And you wanted to know. Now you know. Last year, they brought hell to earth. Now, they'll take you through hell. So look, that uh, trailer doesn't do it justice as far as the visuals, because this movie is such an awesome visual sort of movie, um, and yeah, that trailer is by far one of the best visuals I've actually seen. It really just really shows you, um, you know, what's going to be happening, and it, and it really, yeah, I've, I've really, really enjoyed that one. So the movie opens up where, in the past, British military officer Elliot Spencer is sitting in a room now it's basically the same room same sort of situation as frank was sitting in he was sitting in a uh, a very darkened room obviously frank had uh you know the candles around him he was sitting in a circle well this one basically opens up elliot spencer is sitting in what seems to be a military barracks there's you know um, beds on either side and it basically you know goes uh, you know through the place where you've got an old style radio an old fm sort of radio and it's it's you know got you know the high wave and the, and the low wave sort of situation and it's picking up some sort of strange transmission from a radio station and you know you can see a military um outfit and you can see so basically we're getting the idea like oh okay this is a military guy and uh so he's just sitting there on the ground and he's just playing with what do we not play with everyone Yes, that's right. We do not play with the lament configuration, but he is playing with it. Or for people who don't know what the lament configuration is, he's playing with the box. The box that summons the Cenobites. So he's just sitting there playing with it, you know. And as we all know, anyone that has watched this movie, and we all have watched this movie, hopefully all of us have, if you haven't watched this movie, press pause right now, go and watch it. You can either get it on Amazon, you can watch it on YouTube, or you can watch it, you know, obviously go and buy it on eBay. It is well worth the watch. So I would say if you haven't watched this movie, go watch it now because at the end of this podcast, there's going to be some spoilers and some movie reviews and, you know, fun facts, and I don't want to ruin it for anyone. So please, if you've never watched this movie, stop the podcast now. You've got to come back and come back to it.
So anyway, he's sitting there on the ground and he's just playing with the box. And as we all know, the box wants you to open it. He It wants you to, to play with it. And so he's just sitting there and of course it, you know, makes a little bit of an electric shock, you know, and he drops it, you know, immediately. And of course, then the top of the box opens up. Now, when I say the top of the box, where the circle part is that everyone runs their fingers around, this opens up, you know, into like a four-pointed star. And uh, of course, it's making some, you know, nice, you know, noise that's going on. And we're thinking, okay, so what the what the hell is going on here? We've got some, if you hear a dog barking in the background, that's actually my, my dog, Oliver, that's, that is freaking out at probably someone walking past my house right now. But pay no, pay no attention to him. So anyway, Frank, uh, sorry, um, well, I've lost my train of thought. Elliot, Elliot is sitting there, and of course he decides, you know, out of like we all do, you know, we're going to look inside the box. What the hell is coming from inside this thing? And of course, as he moves over to look, there's a, uh, a shot where a... Um, a chain with a hook comes flying out and, of course, grabs a hold of him. And immediately we get the scream of, you know, pain and agony, whatever. And then you see him, another shot of him basically being transformed into Pinhead. And it is quite a graphic sort of situation that you've got going on. I mean, he's, sta he's standing there. You can only see really his head. And he's screaming, oh, oh, mother of God, help me, help me. And, you know, you've got the, the cuts that are happening on his head. And then you see the pins all being put in. And then, you know, something is hit in towards the back of his head. And he absolutely screams. But, of course, there's blood everywhere. And this is obviously showing you how he transformed into Pinhead. So shortly after her father is killed by Frank Cotton... Kirsty Cotton is admitted into a psychiatric hospital. So this is what happens when we see the transfer, transform from, or you know, the scene changing from Pinhead to Kirsty. Kirsty's laying in a bed, and there's a police officer at the bottom of her bed. Of course, we didn't know that to begin with, but he does inter, you know, introduce himself as a police officer and saying that you know you're in a um, you're in a hospital, you're in a psychiatric hospital, and she's like psychiatric. What what do you mean by a psychiatric hospital? And it was the fact that this whole situation had happened with the, the box. And of course they found these what had gone on in the house. It sort of transforms between the hospital and the house. We're getting to see the police going through and finding de you know, dead bodies. And of course we're basically, being we're basically going through the house and being shown the remnants of what had actually happened between Frank and between the Cenobites and between Julia. So it's really showing you the whole lot of um, things that are going on. And so it's going backwards and forwards as far as, um, you know, the transition situation. And, uh, and of course, she's like, well, you know, where's where's my boyfriend? And they're like, you know, he got, he's like, oh, you know, we sent him home hours ago. And it was one hell of a story to, that, you, that he told us. Now, why don't you tell us what had actually happened? And of course, they bring out the lament configuration and put it in front of her again and say, you know, you're holding on to this, of course. And she sort of like backs up as if to say, get the fucking thing away from me. I don't want anything to do with that thing. And uh, so, of course, then we are introduced to a doctor by the name of Dr. Chenard. And this is the Chenard Institute. And we're introduced, introduced also to his assistant, Carl McRae. She tells her account of the events, and of course, as they're talking, there's a radio um, the radio crackle comes over with, from a police officer saying, listen, um, we found a mattress. It looks like there's someone who's been messed up pretty bad on this. Can we just get rid of this? And of course, the police officer is like, listen, it's evidence, tag it and move it, you know. 
And of course, this is when the camera then pans back to Kirsty, who basically says, Julia. And she says, listen, you've got to destroy that mattress. See, Julia died on it, and he, she can come back like Frank did. So you've got to destroy the mattress. And of course, this, this perks up Dr. Chenard's um, interest. We'll find out why this, this perks his interest up. But uh, she's trying to tell everyone, you have got to destroy that mattress. So she pleads with them to destroy the bloody mattress um, that Julia died upon. After hearing Kirsty's story, Dr. Chenard, who is secretly obsessed with the lament configuration, has the mattress brought to his home. This is because, you know, as I just said, he's very interested in the occult. He's very interested in pushing the boundaries. And you, you do see a couple of things with him as far as um, his interest in the occult. And there are some things that are going on in the hospital that, as they say, is not quite kosher. Um... Things that you should not be doing at all, and I don't believe they are happening. I mean, they may have happened, who knows. But we actually take a bit of a walk with Dr. Chenard at one stage, and he takes us through a uh, elevator ride to maintenance down the very bottom of the hospital to find that the absolutely criminally insane, I guess, or the most insane of the insane, are held in basically containment... Um, wouldn't say rooms these are like prison cells but they're padded walls you know and we're going through and we're seeing the different scenarios of people there's a, a man when they when he opens up the little door that he's saying please get them off me please 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 get them off me we've got another another man who's got a crucifix and he's walking around his padded cell basically you know we can't see anything, but obviously he can. We've also got another person that when they open up the door, he's there screaming, you know, at, at the top of his lungs. Um, we've got another door that opens up, another, because he's in the door, they've got like little peepholes. So he opens it up and he, of course he sees another person trying to swat away things that aren't there. Obviously we can't see it, but he can once again. So of course the mattress, he, he says to the police officer, he rings the police officer up after, you know, Kirsty again says please destroy the mattress and he calls uh, the officer and he says listen i can definitely help this this girl but i need you to bring the mattress you know with you but don't bring it to the hospital i want you to bring it to my house tonight and of course and, and i think to myself you know this is where the first part of really would that really happen i don't think it would i don't think any police officer in any department would sit there and go okay so this is evidence someone was murdered horribly on this on this uh, mattress so we'll bring it to a psychiatric hospital um the doctor's house so he can play with it i don't believe that would ever happen because this is <laughs> this is evidence they're not going to sit there and just give a, a doctor who believes that he can you know help this person um a mattress to just play with so not going to happen but you know what i'm the the movie's too good to even start worrying about the little parts of the movie that you sit there and go really i'm not even worrying about that so of course we then follow Ms. dr chenard who has now got the mattress in his uh, house he decides that he's going to go and uh, have a bit of a wander to the hospital. And he goes to the hospital and he convinces a men mentally ill patient, Mr. Browning, to come home with him. And now Mr. Browning has got a straitjacket on him. And he is saying to, to Dr. Chenard, please get them off me. Please, please, please get them off me. But he's saying that in a crying sort of way. He's in, in, in agony. He's in mental anguish. And Dr. Chenard, really, it's almost like he, these, this, uh, the bottom part of the hospital 
is his own little play area. He can do whatever he wants. These people are the forgotten. No one's going to worry about this person. No one's even going to really care, you know, that this person is, is gone out of their lives. He's in a hospital. We're guessing he's getting good treatment, but we don't care. We don't go and visit him. And Dr. Chenard says, yep, everything's fine. So we'll just worry. We'll just leave it at that. So he brings him home takes off his straight jacket and uh, you can only imagine the smell because the, the poor guy obviously doesn't get regular baths or showers. He's very emaciated, you know, and so he, he's convinced by Dr. Chenard to lie on the mattress. Of course, Dr. Chenard, you know, also... Now, we get to see at this moment, you know, Dr. Brown, uh, Mr. Browning is sitting on the, on, the, on the bed on the mattress and he's saying, get them off me. Please get them off me. Now, the camera pans, and no, there is absolutely nothing on him. He's got cuts all over his body, but there is absolutely nothing on him whatsoever. So this is all mental. In his mind, he can see what he sees, and we get a chance to see exactly what it is that he sees. He sees maggots crawling all over his skin and out of his cuts on his arm, and he's saying, please, please, please get them off me. So obviously we understand now Dr. Chenard has not been helping him you know, mentally with any sort of treatment. He's just been put into a dungeon and forgot about. So at that moment, Dr. Chenard walks over to his desk and pulls out a straight razor and calmly places it in Mr. Browning's hands as if to say, well, go on. This is what you've wanted to do. You wanted to get them off you. Then you get them off you yourself. So, of course, Mr. Browning then starts to cut himself with the straight razor. And I mean, cuts himself. And this is where I love this movie because it's blood, guts, gore and horror. And I fucking love it. Uh, that's terrible. I was actually a little bit more excited than what I thought I was going to be. I everyone, I didn't mean to be that excited about this. But this really, you know, Hellraiser gave us a little bit of, of the whole guts and gore. This one steps it up like a hundredfold and this really gives what i believe hellraiser was all about which was just blood guts gore horror give me more of that sort of situation so this is why i'm saying you know if you've ever wanted to see a great horror movie with a lot of blood guts and gore please stop this podcast now go put it on youtube sit there and watch it you'll love it you really will so of course he is cutting himself all over the place he's cutting his arms cutting cutting through his um his sternum of course he goes to a, to his uh, neck and i'm thinking to myself jesus mate don't go any further you're gonna freaking cut your jugular vein you know but anyway he's cutting himself and he's laying on the bed and he's just cutting himself and whatever the resulting blood frees a skinless julia from the Cenobites dimension. So of course, as he's cutting himself and there is just blood all over, suddenly you get to see two hands that had just basically explode from the mattress and grab a hold of him. And then you see Julia's head start to emerge, her face starts to emerge from the right-hand side of where he's laying. And then of course, she then wraps her legs around him. And as he tries to roll out of the way, she is pulled out of the mattress. So now Julia is now free. And it's like, oh, unbelievable so um dr mccray which is kyle mccray um, uh, um uh, dr chenard's assistant had led himself into dr chenard's house and had had seen you know the the puzzle boxes in there there's three of them that he's got there and he's got a lot of you know very very strange stuff things in in glass bottles and it's a very strange weird stuff and even now that unfortunately there's not this part of the movie there's not a whole lot of great acting 
because Colin McRae's like, fucking weird, Jesus Christ. You know, he really didn't make it believable that he was freaking out about the fact that Dr. Chenard was doing all this weird sort of shit. But anyway, he's basically, you know, standing towards the where the, the door that he let himself in. He's behind a curtain. And, of course, he's witnessing um, the whole scenario of Julia trying to... Uh, that has now been resurrected. Now, the poor guy, Dr. Uh, Mr. Browning, is trying to get out of the house because this thing has now grabbed a hold of him and is trying to get, you know, obviously trying to get him. Of course, Julia has got a lot more strength. Mr. Browning is losing, losing blood by the second. And, of course, Julia lays on top of him and places her hand or slams her hand directly into the back of his head and basically is now drawing his essence and his life force out of his body. She then sucks him dry, and then he, then she then lays on the be- on the bed. So it's almost like holy shit. <laughs> and I, I sometimes think Dr. Chenard is sitting there going, "Did I just witness this? Wow, I really did." <laughs> um, so you know, he does. Uh, Kyle actually does witness this whole thing, and he flees in terror. He's like, "Holy shit, I've got to get out of here." Of course, then, you know, the camera then cuts back to Julia laying on the mattress and Dr. Chenard's just basically sitting there, you know, or standing there in stunned silence, looking at her going, wow, this really did work. I didn't think it was ever going to, was actually going to work. And, um, of course, Julia basically looks over to him and says, you know, don't be afraid. And so we all know, as as we've all seen this movie julia is an evil bitch so her saying don't be afraid is like yeah well i think we should be afraid for sure um so then of course she stands up and she says to dr chenard i'm cold and so this is where we're going to start because julia is skinless you can see all her muscles and i think this the the visual effects on this movie the the special effects, the just the it's just absolutely amazing. I mean, think about it. Think back when Frank became basically almost whole. He had this. He didn't have skin, of course, but he had the the blood and the red muscles and the tissues and all that sort of stuff. That was amazing special effects. That was makeup artistry at its finest. Well, this is the same way as Julia is. Julia is standing there in this whole get up. Now there is a movie fault, unfortunately. Um, and I will come back to it, or should I do it now? Let's do it now. Okay. So anyone who doesn't want a spoiler, turn it off for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, and then come back. But basically what happens is Julia um, is taken upstairs, and she walks across um, white carpet, and she's standing in front of a full-length mirror, or, yeah, a full-length mirror, looking at herself, and she slams her fist into the mirror, breaking the mirror. Now, when she walked into that room, there was a bloody handprint on the wall and Dr. Chenard saw this and then she then he sees Julia standing in front of this mirror looking at herself but there is absolutely no bloody footprints from where she walked across the carpet to where she's standing now so my way of thinking is if you are fully skinned if you've got no skin at all holding blood or that sort of situation in you as you're walking along you would make bloody footprints but they didn't do this one and it's on white carpet so be you know figure it out as, as you go you know whether you'd believe that, that you know she'd be able to walk across without bloody footprints i think there would be bloody footprints there for sure but you know i'm not going to get into it i love this movie so i'm going to overlook that sort of situation so kirsty meets a, a young patient by the name of tiffany who demonstrates an amazing aptitude for puzzles so she um she's basically confronted by um kyle and uh 
this is sort of like they've sort of like done this out of out of proportion because Kyle actually she actually meets Tiffany before Kyle goes to Dr. Chenard's home and he's got some sleeping pills for her to take and uh, he explains to her that you know Tiffany this little girl is a complete mystery she doesn't talk to anyone she's got no visitors she's completely alone all she does is she sits in her room and solves puzzles and that's all she does so we can almost sort of start to see there's a very, very good thing coming with Dr. Jannard and Tiffany. We'll have to get to it, though. We'll get there. So, Kirsty is awakened in her room by a vision of skin, her skinless father, who tells her in writing that he is in hell and to help her. Of course, Kyle McRae arrives back at the hospital and informs Kirsty he, he now believes that everything she said is true. She, he actually witnessed this skinless Julia coming out of the mattress and attacking this poor guy. The two decide to return to Dr. Chenard's home, which is probably a very, very bad idea. Meanwhile, Dr. Chenard, seduced by Julia, has brought him more, in, more mentally ill patients to his home for her to feed on and regenerate. Kirsty and McRae arrive at Chenard's home. This is unfortunate because, you know, Kyle actually was a really great, really great guy. And uh, when, he, when he originally had said to, to her about, or Kirsty about the fact that, you know, um... I, everything you've said is true. I did see this, and and of course, you know, she does say to him, "I had a visitor, my father," and he's like, "She's like, he's like, what? What do you mean by your father?" And she said, "He's suffering, and he's in hell, and I need to get there." And of course, he goes, "Listen, I'll take you out of here, and we can go to Doctor Janai's home." And he's and she says to him, "No, I've got a better idea. How, do you have a ticket to hell? I need to go and get my father." And it's like, mm, "Yep, okay." But the once again the the whole visual um, effects of when her father comes to her is another amazing situation. He writes, you know, I'm in hell. Please help me. Um, and it's it's a very very effective sort of like visual of Kirsty's dad coming to her. And you can almost and you can see that Kirsty is really um, she's got a lot of guilt in the situation because she thought who she thought was her father was actually Frank, you know, in the original movie. So she's got a lot of guilt around the fact that she was not there to help her dad. And now, unfortunately, her dad's gone. So as I said, you know, she she and Kyle go to the house. And, of course, um, Julia is actually confronted by um, Kirsty, who Julia has got a lot of strength in her. And she gives her basically a backhander and knocks poor old Julia out. Uh, <laughs> then, of course, um, we go to another cut scene where... Kyle is now gone into a room where Dr. Chenard has had at least half a dozen, maybe more, people chained up to the ceiling, and uh, Julia has been basically feasting on all these people to become whole. And of course, you know, Kyle's standing there, and right behind him, who arrives? Good old Julia. And she says, you know, um, is it terrible? And he goes, yes, it, it is terrible. And uh, she she's not complete. She's got the last part of her spine to go to regenerate fully. And she says to him, oh, you poor boy, come here, come to mother. So she, he goes over to her and uh, she says, you know, what what's your name? And he says, oh, uh, Kyle. And she goes, oh, my name is Julia, pleased to meet you and slams her hand into the back of his skull while kissing him very passionately and basically sucks all the life force and all his, you know, all that situation to regenerate herself out of poor old Kyle and she becomes whole, leaving poor Kyle dead. And it's like, oh man, Kyle was really, he was he was actually really, really a great guy. 
Um, of course, now she's fully regenerated and she's knocked poor old Kirsty out. And so it's like, okay, what are we going to have next? So Chenard and Julia, of course, now Ju Julia's standing in this room where there's dead bodies all over the place. And uh, Dr. Chenard walks in and says, now I have a gift for you. And of course, we present Tiffany right in front of her. And it's like, uh-huh, now we know exactly what's going to happen. We know exactly what's going to happen with this because Tiffany is amazing at solving puzzles. So what better way to open the lament configuration? Someone that doesn't doesn't have anything to lose will do that. So Chenard and Julia um, force her to unlock the con lament configuration so they can enter la the labyrinth-like world of Pinhead and the Cenobites. So basically they're standing behind a two-way mirror. Poor old Tiffany's in a room by herself and she's mucking around with this, the, the box. And um, Julia and Chenard are behind a solid brick wall with a circular window but they can see in. But Jul all that um, Tiffany can think is, oh, it's just a mirror. And of course, Julia says, are you sure about this? And Chenard says, it's everything that I've wanted. I need to know. I have to know, you know, what is, if, if there's really, if there's something after death. And of course, so... Once again, Tiffany is playing with the box, wants it to open it, and it opens the box. And of course, now we've released the Cenobites. Now, this is the first time that humanity of Pinhead finally it comes out. Because Chatterer comes out, Butterball comes out, the female Ch Cenobite comes out. I can't remember her name. But as they go to walk towards Tiffany, Pinhead comes out and goes, No! And he go, and of course they look at him, and he goes, "No," and they're like, "No," and he goes, "It is not hands that summon us; it is desire that summon us." And they look towards the the wind of the mirror. Obviously, we know that now they figured out that this is not poor old Tiffany didn't summon them; someone else did. And of course, they leave Tiffany alone to go and find out who it is. Well, Julia is now basically showing Dr. Chenard around hell, showing her, showing him different places around hell. And it's almost like you've got your own hell tour guide. Well, you've got, you know, Julia as your, your tour guide, so hey, why not? So they enter, followed by Kirsty, who now possess, possesses the lament configuration. So what happens is that she's basically, you know, poor old Tiffany is sitting in a room, and, uh, you know, Kirsty wakes up and she's like, oh my God. So she knows exactly where the hell she is. She opens the door and finds Tiffany just sitting there on the ground. And um, actually, no, she doesn't. No, she doesn't actually. Tiffany gets up and goes for a walk. That's right. She goes for a walk by herself. Kirsty finds a the, the box just sitting on the ground. So she figures, shit, I better, I better take this just in case I'm going to need it. And of course, as she's running through the place, she is then confronted by Pinhead and the Cenobites. And she tries to start opening the box. And of course, Pinhead goes, uh, what do you think you're basically doing? We're already in hell. How can you send us back, child, when we're already here? And um, he goes, but please, you know, feel free to explore. We've got an entire time to enjoy your flesh. And basically lets her explore hell all by herself. So she's got the lament configuration. But before she actually leaves, um, Pinhead you know, takes it out of her hand, you know, obviously, it's almost like the, the Jedi mind sort of situation, and transforms it into a long lament configuration. So this is a way that we've actually never seen the box before. We always thought the box was just open the normal way, 
but this thing can be actually be turned into a very long sort of um, configuration. Very, very unusual to actually have this, but I thought it was a really great take on it. So, you know, Kirsty is now running around hell trying to figure out what's going on. Pinhead and the other Cenobites, obviously they find her and tell her, explore. It's a great idea. Julia betray betrays Dr. Chenard and leaves him to be transformed into a Cenobite by the god of hell, the Leviathan. And it's very interesting because when they're walking through hell and they get out to like a very open sort of clearing, the lament configuration is spinning almost like in a... Um, a lighthouse sort of situation so if you can imagine a light of a lighthouse think of the the light on top of the eiffel tower how you've got the two beams on either side and it's basically continuously rotating that's what the lament configuration is doing but every time it hits dr chenard dr chenard is showing all the very terrifying things that he's done to patients what he's done when he was a young boy um, what he's done, you know, as a surgeon, what he's done when he first saw Julia come out of the out of the uh, the mattress, what he's done to poor old Tiffany. So there is situation that he's actually seeing. So every time he's hit by this light or this beam of light, he actually is seeing what's going on. So of course Julia then starts to walk him back, and, he, and he's like, you know, I I just I want to get out of here. And uh, of course Julia says to him, they wanted souls, so I bought them you. And of course, as he as she's backing him back, um, he's now in, in sort of like a um, almost like a cage sort of situation, and she's like, "You wanted to know, now you know, you know." And he is transformed. These these two stakes go into his body. One sucks out the blood, and the other puts in. I guess would be very much line along the lines of preservant into his body. Um, some wire comes across his face, um, and now digs into his skin and I'm um, it's it's almost like it's a um, a medical drill but it goes into his mouth and starts drilling his his mouth so it's like this is just getting worse and worse as we go along so meanwhile we've got Kirsty running around all over the place and she's desperately trying to find her father and she does actually happen to encounter a uh, the front door of the house that she once uh, her father once occupied and of course unfortunately she encounters Frank Cotton in the labyrinth who reveals that he tricked her by pretending to be her father now this is even something that Pinhead did say to her he said uh, your father is in his own hell and quite unreachable and of course this is when she says to Pinhead I don't believe you and he's like well okay go ahead and explore go and go and find where you you think you might be but uh, hey <laughs> it's not as good off my nose I'm going to have a great time ripping you apart so go ahead so unfortunately he, he does um, we do find out that Frank did make it uh, aware that uh, guess what I wasn't I was actually making you come to hell for my pleasure because uh, the only way that I was going to get you down here was just to be pretending to be your father but of course as we're going along Julia appears in the doorway and basically <laughs> Frank's standing there and he's like uh, of course this sort of scenario, it sort of like goes backwards and forwards because um, there's these slabs that keep uh, appearing and disappearing and they've got these, what we can see, naked women writhing uh, underneath the the, um, the covers of these, these beds. And Kirsty actually does pull one of the sheets away to find that there is nothing there. And Frank says to her, Frank basically says to her that um, this is my hill, they tease me they promise me forever and they never deliver and of course he does try to get very sexual with Kirsty 
who then has has already taken off one of the covers and uh, basically encourages him to come on well then let's get onto the bed and so frank once again comes into the old you know oh awesome i'm going to get some kirsty and this is when she says to him i'd much rather burn in hell than be with you and throws the the sheet over some candles that were lit in this room and of course there's fire and everything that goes on and poor old frank loses his skin once again so now he's standing there in all his glory of blood and muscles and the way he was to begin with of course this is when julia appears in the doorway and frank's like you know oh i knew you'd, you'd come you know you're that kind of girl you always keep your your promises and she goes oh yeah i definitely keep my promises now as we go along julia has found tiffany so she's dragged tiffany along with this whole little family excursion as well unfortunately julia destroys frank in revenge for killing her allowing kirsty to escape with tiffany Julia is then killed by a vortex that opens be between her and the labyrinth, leaving her only a skin behind. Um, this is sort of like disjointed, so I'll have to go back and basically explain to you. So there's Kirsty, and she's running away with Tiffany, and she's saying to Tiffany, you've got to get us out of here. We've got to get out of this, this um, scenario. We've got to get out of hell, basically. And um, they go to run across a, um, a, a like a between two hallways and of course then there's this giant explosion and of course we find that julia is is basically right behind her behind them and is now getting sucked into hell like into the portal of the labyrinth so you know julia reaches out to her to tiffany to basically say come to me you know i'll look after you and then of course kirstie's like don't you go near her and reaches out her hand but the gust of wind is so strong that as they reach out for for julia to help her her skin basically then basically comes off and julia is sucked into into the the chasm of the Le leviathan and her skin basically is left by you know just on the floor so it's like okay no problems so kirsty and tiffany attempt to escape but are ambushed by chenard now having become a cenobite and i love this um what dr chenard says he comes out from you know the transformation of a cenobite and he says to think that I hesitated. And of course now he, because he's a brain surgeon, I mean, he's just not a regular surgeon, he's a brain surgeon as well. He uses these instruments to dig into people's brains. So as he comes out of this little, you know, transformation chasm that he's been in, this um, attachment attaches onto his head and now he can basically float around all over the place with this thing attached to his head. I really don't think that I was very excited about this fact because I think that they, he would have actually done a lot better without this thing being attached to his head. Um, I've, this is one of the only parts of the, this movie that I've ever gone, you know what, I, I love it, but they didn't need to do this. They basically restricted him in his movements. He could have been like Pinhead, he could have been like Butterball, he could have been like Chatterer, he could have been like any of the Cenobites that could just walk freely around hell. He's basically attached to, as I said, this um, thing that is now dug into his head but it controls him he's basically hovering and levitating um around the place if he wants to set step down he has obviously commands it to you know put him down onto, onto the ground but he can't walk freely without this thing being attached so it basically really does limit him on his movements through hell but he is very terrifying i think he's, he becomes even more terrifying than what pinhead is and that is saying something
Now, of course, up to this moment, uh, poor old Tiffany hasn't said a great deal in this movie. So the first thing that comes out of her mouth is, oh, shit, <laughs> when they see Dr. Chenard. And, of course, they go, fuck it, let's go. So they flee and uh, trying to get away from Chenard. Um, but uh, unfortunately, they encounter Pinhead and the other Cenobites. Now, Kirsty during this time, had actually gone into Dr. Chenard's office um, at, a, at his home and had found an old photograph, and it happens to be the very first photograph of um, uh, Elliot. So in his uh, uniform of being a, an officer. So of course when they do um, come across Pinhead, she shows Pinhead a photograph of Elliot Spencer that she took from Chenard's study. And he and he basically says, he says to them, uh, says to Kirsty, oh, okay, so what have you got here? Someone else you think has, has escaped us? And she goes, no, 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 it's you. And he's like, rubbish. You know, almost like bullshit. You know, we've always been here. And he, she goes, no, remember, you were never like this. You were, were all, you were all just not like this. You were, you had lives. You were people. You know, you've got to remember. And of course, he gradually remembers that he was human. So suddenly, Chenard appears, and Pinhead and the other Cenobites attempt to fight him. But Chenard is way too powerful. He easily overpowers and kills them all. Now, this is very, very interesting. Okay. In the movie, we don't know who Chatterer was. We don't know who Butterball was. We don't know who the female Cenobite was. Um, I mean, I guess, okay, I guess we kind of figure out who the female Cenobite is, or Pinhead. But as we uh, we go to learn, um, Chenard fires these um, almost like knives out of his hands, um, killing each of the Cenobites. Now he fires the first one out of his hand and kills Butterball, and we find that Butterball was actually a very overweight young man the second one he slices the throat of the female cenobite and we find that it was a very attractive woman the third one is probably the most surprising um he kills chatterer who is transformed into a little boy and i'm saying a little boy of maybe 10 to 12 maybe 10 to 12 in those in the that range no no older than that um and you think to yourself, what were their sins? What, how could their sins be so great that they opened this box and they were transformed into the Cenobites? You know, what? I mean, I mean, okay, I guess you've got Frank that sits there and goes, he wants to go further than he, than he has. And maybe, you know, Butterball was the same way and the female Cenobite was the same way. But how could you think that a 12-year-old boy between 10 and 12 had a sin that great that he became Chatterer? It's and then this is the whole thing. It would have been really nice um, for them to go back and show you the backstory of of all these people because suddenly, as you know, because um, Dr. Chenard is now also firing electricity at Pinhead, and each in each each explosion that actually hits him transforms him further and further back into Elliot, where he finally becomes Elliot. You see him as a young man standing there, and of course, this is before his throat gets slit and he and he dies. But now we can see that there was a backstory uh, that that Elliot was, or Elliot became Pinhead. So now it's sort of like regressing back to where Pinhead has become Elliot again. But it would be really nice to have found out, you know, what happened with the female Cenobite, what happened with Chatterer, what happened with Butterball, how did they become who they became? And I think that the the filmmakers really lost that ability to really do that. And I would have, as a movie, and I'm not a movie producer, I'm not a movie writer at all. But if I was given the opportunity, I would say, okay, so we've had Hellraiser 1, Hellraiser 2, and now we found out these people were 
these Cenobites were people, let's go back and tell their backstory in number three. How did they become what they became? How did they get trapped in the lament configuration? How did they get trapped in hell? How did they become these people? That would have been really interesting, and I think they lost a lot of that ability. They had a, a gold mine to basically open up and really delve really deeply into this movie, and I think they just they just missed the mark, unfortunately. But we find out that these Cenobites were actually people. So Chenard traps Kirsty and Tiffany. Kirsty finds Julia's skin and wears it to distract Chenard, giving Tiffany enough time to once again solve the lament configuration. Chenard is killed and the door to hell is finally closed. Kirsty and Tiffany leave. Elsewhere, two moving men are removing Dr. Chenard's belongings from his home. One is pulling aside the mattress. Yes, and the other witnesses a mysterious pillar rise from within it. One of the faces fuses to the pillar and is a va the vagrant from the previous film, which asks the man, What's your pleasure, sir? The movie fades to black, and that's the end of the movie. Now, there was a alternate ending to what they were going to do, but they unfortunately didn't do it, and, and this really, it's, it's, it's upsetting in a way, as far as I'm concerned. The, the ending to this movie is really good, but the ending that they actually had in mind, um, I thought was, was way better after reading it. Okay, so if we figure the way that this movie ended, the original ending that they actually had in mind was when you see the mattress laying on the ground, and of course the only way to activate the mattress is by someone to be killed. So in the end of this movie, one of the moving men are sucked into the mattress and killed, because uh, that actually activates then the mysterious pillar that comes from without, out from it. The original ending was that the guy is sucked into the mattress and killed, and then as the other guy, the other moving man is watching, Julia appears out of the um, mattress and stands there as a Cenobite exclaiming that she is the queen of hell. And that's when the movie would have faded to black and that would have been, would have been the end of the movie. Um, that would have actually been an amazing ending. Unfortunately, they sort of like went with the, oh, let's, let's be... Um, let's be safe in the ending. Let's not get too far out of the possibility of ending this movie. Let's do it safely. But I would have thought that it would have been an amazing ending to have Julia standing there looking as a, as a Cenobite, standing there saying, you know, that I am the queen of hell. And maybe, maybe she would have said, what's your pleasure, sir? And that would have been the end of the movie. That would have been awesome. But, you know, they didn't do it that way. So, look, it's okay. Look, as far as I'm concerned, great movie special effects are amazing blood guts gore and horror absolutely incredible now i always give zero to five buckets of blood zero being how do i get the last two hours of my life back to five being it was a perfect movie and i'd watch it all over again um oh you know i i i'm always terrified about giving a five because i think everyone's going to sit there and watch it and go really a five paul are you kidding me i'm going to give it a absolutely dead set 100 percent four and a half out of five I'm only giving a four and a half out of five because I'm so scared about giving it a five because I don't want to oversell it or I don't want to have that situation where someone reads it or watches the movie and then comes back to me and says, you're so full of shit. It's <laughs> definitely not a five. But I just, I'm, I'm trying to be conservative enough to sit there and go, I'm, I, I like, I love this movie. It's a great movie. It's a great sequel. I'm just going to give it a four and a half. So that way I'm right in the center, the meaty part of the, of the movie and making sure that, uh, I'm not being not going to have that situation where I'm overselling it and someone sits there and goes, man, I would have given it a two, maybe two and a half at most. How am I supposed to trust this, this podcast? So I'm going to give it a, a solid four and a half.
But look, before we go, remember, I always love to do Paul's Fun Facts. So as usual, there are so many um, trivia facts that I'm not going to be telling all of them. There is actually 32 in, in all, so if you want to read all of them, uh, it's on IMDb. And I've also there's also got uh, six spoilers as well, and I'll read a couple of those. But for this for this trivia one, Clive Barker had develop, developed elaborate backstories for the Cenobites in the first film, though their origins were never fully explored. In this film, he wanted to make sure that, at the very least, the audience understood that the Cenobites were once human, and that their own vices led to them becoming demons, which I don't understand at all, because how can one of the vices of a little boy be becoming a demon? Who knows? This element was meant to underline the story of Frank and Julia and their corruption by lust, with the latter intended to become the ultimate villain of the series, so you know, Julia would have become the Queen of Hell. Pinhead, however, proved much more popular with audiences and thus became the center point of further sequels. Well, yeah, that's 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 understandable. It was also um, with in a in a deep subplot of detailing the origins of Pinhead. Doug Bradley was scripted but deleted in pre-production due to the last-minute budget cuts. All that remained of his subplot is the film's prologue, showing Captain Spencer opening the box and transforming into Pinhead. Pinhead, Captain Spencer's backstory, was later explored in Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. And it was actually a really good um, backstory. You really get to find out a, uh, a little bit of a, of a roundabout way. Not an extreme in-depth, but it really gives you an idea of like what happened to Pinhead. How did he become who he is right now? So in that regard, uh, Hellraiser 3 was a really great movie. So William Hope said that when his mother-in-law and nephew were in London, they asked if they could join him in one day of, of uh, filming. Hope said yes, much to their surprise, because in that particular day they were filming the gruesome scene of the mattress. He says his mother-in-law was in shock, but his nephew loved the day. Well, that sounds about right. <laughs> Kids love anything you know, bloody and gutsy and gory, so I understand that he'd be sitting there going, yes, yeah, awesome! <laughs> So Kenneth Graham, who is actually Dr. Chenard, claimed his involvement was due to his grandson pestering him to take up the offer being a fan of the original film. That's awesome. So you've got someone that's really saying, no, 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 come on, you've got, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. I, I love Hellraiser, you'd be great in this movie. And you'd be like, oh, for the love of God. All right, fair enough. That's awesome. And one final one before we go on to the spoilers. So at around 1 hour 22 minutes, the Chatterer original human form is briefly revealed in one scene to be a young boy. I told you about that one. Apparently, it didn't prevent him from being taken by the Cenobites to be killed and tortured over and over again until becoming a Cenobite himself. That is a uh, part of the movie that I would really love to see more of. How did that young boy become a Cenobite? How did they take him? So that would be very interesting to see. So, yep. That's uh, as far as all the, the fun facts go. As I said, there's um, 32 of them, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but that was just a handful. I think we just just get on to a couple of spoilers to end out the uh, the podcast. So just a couple of spoilers just to end the, uh, end the podcast. So Julia was originally supposed to rise from the mattress as the Queen of Hell at the end of the movie, the theory being that she would be the series' continuing character. Once Hellraiser opened, however, Pinhead proved to be the most popular character among the public. Yeah, so that's the reason why. But I still would have thought that would have been awesome to see um, her rise there, you know, and, and do that sort of situation. 
as Jannard kills the original four Cenobites, they each revert to their human forms, except for Pinhead. Kirsty had reminded him of who he was as a mortal before Jannard attacked him, allowing him to reclaim his lost humanity before Jannard kills him. So that's actually, yeah, not too bad. Uh, at around 1 hour and 13 minutes, this is the last one, when Frank accidentally stabs Julia in the first film, he states that it's nothing personal, baby, before leaving her for the Cenobites. In the second film, Julia throws that line back at Frank when she quite intentionally and quite literally rips his heart out. When the Cenobites finally recapture Frank in the first film, he delivers the, this last line to Kirsty before ripping, being ripped apart, Jesus wept. Kirsty throws that line back to him in the second. So there we go. As I said, there was also some goofs. Um, there's a, like you know, a couple of goofs in the movie, but I'm not going to sit there and read that. I think that something that you guys can sit there and and read and, and enjoy. But uh, look, other than that, that is the end of this podcast. I've got uh, another awesome movie coming up, and I'm actually going to play the trailer of the movie. This is something that I was sort of thinking about maybe doing. I want to see how it goes. It sort of like gives you a, an idea of what's coming up next episode. So if you hear it now, you might be able to go and watch it before um, I review it uh, next time. So next episode is going to be the movie Event Horizon. If you've never seen the movie, here's the trailer. This morning, TDRS picked up an automated navigation beacon broadcasting at two-minute intervals in Neptune orbit. Neptune orbit. This is incredible. It's the event horizon. She's come back. The event horizon is the culmination of a secret government project to create a spacecraft capable of faster-than-light flight. The ship doesn't really go faster than light. What it does is it creates a dimensional gateway that allows it to jump instantaneously from one point of the universe to another light years away. Where has she been for the last seven years, Doctor? That's what we're here to find out. After seven years in deep space. There were 18 people on board this ship when it disappeared. I want them all accounted for. Opening the outer door. It came back abandoned. Many crew. This place is a tomb. But it didn't come back So yeah, anyway, that movie's coming up next week, so you know you might get a chance to watch it before I review it. In the meantime, thank you once again for spending the time with me at the Horror Crypt. I very much appreciate you guys 
downloading the show. I'm glad you're actually enjoying this because I'm loving doing this. We've got so many other movies coming up. I, I can't wait. But look, in the meantime, I'll see you next week. And as I say, every single week, I'll creep you later. Mm-hmm.